0: can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And before we begin, I'd like to ask you to stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's Word. We will read together verses 15 through 17 of John chapter 14. Beginning in verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Thank you. Have you seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, the Lord, I ask for grace and help. Father, we have your word. And we know that it is true and pure and righteous and it endures forever. And yet, O oh God, our feeble minds and limited powers are not able to enter fully into the truths of your word without you and your spirit. Father, I pray that you would demonstrate to us once again that there is a great benefit to the son and his returning to you, that this blessed comforter might come. Lord, I ask that you would quicken us to see and to know your word in a fresh way. Lord, that we would have our consciences lit ablaze for your glory. Father, help us to know your love, even in an experiential way, that we might know, each one of us, that we are loved by God. Oh, Father, I pray that you protect me from error, guard my mouth from misspeaking, shut it if necessary. O oh God. Lord, I do pray that you would call a lost one among us to yourself today, that they would see the need to know that you love them personally. Father, I pray that you would glorify your name in all of these things, and I ask it in Jesus name. Amen. The title of the sermon this morning is very simple. There's a question you'll see in your bulletin Do you love him? Jesus says, If you love me. Now, a very simple grammatical truth that all of us who took any kind of elementary level English class know. Is that this little word, if, means there's a clause involved. It means that this is not true of everyone. If you love me. In other words, a lot of people don't. And Jesus is making a clarification for us today. If you'll recall, last week we finished from verse 14 and looked at verses 12 through 14. And we were looking at... Jesus talking about these works that those who believe in Him were going to do, and even greater works. And we saw the conclusion being in an effectual proclamation of the Gospel where the Holy Spirit would bring that Gospel message to the hearts of the hearers. And we worked through that last week. And now Jesus turns to His own in the midst of the same conversation and says to them, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Now this is interesting. There's a flow of thought and we're going to see the connection in these things. But I want to ask you, do you remember where we started last week when we looked where Jesus says that whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do? You recall me telling you that was an indicative statement. You remember what an indicative statement means. An indicative statement is a statement that reveals truth to you. You recall, Jesus has said, whoever believes in me will also do the works. He's not saying do the works back in that verse in verse 12. He's saying, whoever does believe me, this will be true of them. They will do the works. It's an indicative statement. Well, here again, at the beginning this week, we have another indicative statement. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, this Indicative statement is a revelation of objective reality and unchanging truth. And perhaps you're thinking, well, why are you starting making the same point that you were making last week? Well, for one, because John does that, but also for another very important reason. And I don't want this to be too confusing for you. The easiest way for us to differentiate between indicative statements or objective truth. Indicative statements are This is indicating to you what is objectively true. And then you have imperative statements or commands. How do we tell whether what Jesus is doing here is an indicative or an imperative? Is Jesus telling us something he wants us to know? Or is he telling us something he wants us to do? Look for yourself at verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I believe this is clearly an indicative statement that is indicating or revealing something to us. And as I mentioned, it does seem a little bit repetitive, but it bears repeating, and I'll, I'll tell you why. How many people do you suppose, from cults to false religions to immature Christians even, have taken a verse like this to be a command from Jesus of how to be in right, loving relationship with Him. Jesus says, If you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. Many people begin to grow cold in their knowledge and awareness of the presence of God in their life. How does that meet with you here today? Are you aware of the presence and power of God in your life on a regular basis? Are you one, like many of us, who would say there are times where I feel cold, disconnected from God, not experiencing God, The way that I wish that I was. People live their lives without a sense of confidence and joy. And they really, at the end of the day, want to know one thing. Does God love? How do you measure up to those things? How do you measure up to these questions? Do you, as I'm mentioning, have a felt sense of the presence of God in your life? What I mean by that is, are you experiencing God? Can you say that your life, your day by day is lived with an awareness that the living God is among you or not? There's an experiential element to what I'm asking. Do you have confidence in joy? Do you know that he loves you? Now, even if you're one who says, I'm very balanced, I'm very spiritually mature. I know what God is doing in my life. I have no doubts and I'm on cloud nine, I know God's with me. If that's you, well, it is inevitable that no matter how mature you may be as a Christian, you are going to go through periods when you don't have that confidence assurance of of God's love for you. Some examples from the scriptures we have of this. We consider this in the Sunday school from Psalm 51. David prays, "'Cast me not away from your presence,' And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with the willing spirit. What's David saying? I don't want to be without the presence of God. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. In other words, David's saying, I don't have joy at God's salvation. And I want it restored. Now, how many of us can say that you've ever had an experience where you don't have joy in your soul over the salvation of God. You can say, I believe God has saved me. But we, if we're honest, we know we don't always feel very joyous about what God's done. Or Isaiah, in chapter 63 and verse 17, he prays, O Lord, Why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Isaiah is saying, God's so far from us, it's as though He's forcing us away from Him. You're hardening our hearts. Where are you? And he goes on to pray, Lord, come down. You're not with us. Where are you? Come back to us. Separated from God. That's how he feels. Lamentations. This is suggested to be Jeremiah's concern and prayer over the state of the nation of Israel. Verses 20 and 21. He says to God, this is a prayer. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days As of old, it is a common experience of every Christian, especially in the aftermath of some sin, to feel as though you have been utterly cast out of the presence of God and his love. Now, I'm harping on this point for a very particular reason. What are we supposed to do as Christians if we find ourselves in that condition? How can your soul be restored to an experiential knowledge of the love of God? This is very, very important. And as you're going to see, the answer does not only apply to the Christian. You see, I'm pressing and demanding these things and saying this is an indicative statement. Jesus is telling something that's objectively true in order to guard us from a serious, serious error. Many people have the tendency... Whenever they're confronted, when they feel separated from God, what is their response? What's your response when you feel as though you're separated from God? Is not our response so often to throw ourselves into an attempt at obedience to try to follow his commands? I've done wrong. I've got to hurry and try to do right to win back his favor, to win back his love that you feel you may have lost. If you have a spouse, if you've wronged your spouse, you're prone to the same thing. What can I do to make it up to? That's how we all are. Your child will do the same thing. They've done wrong. And then they're confronted and they're called out immediately. Daddy, I love you so much. Well, I know you do, but you still did wrong. As though they had to do something to convince me to still love them. That's how we're prone to think. And we can take a verse like this. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Well... Many people seem to think that this verse says, if you want to know God's love for you, keep his commandments. If you want to know God loves you, keep his commandments. That's not what he says. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what he says. And I'll argue that there is no sure path. To either rank and disgusting self righteousness that lowers God's standard on the one hand, or on the other hand, an abject misery and torment in your soul, than thinking that way. If you think that the way to get back in right standing with God is by trying to keep His commandments, you're not understanding what Jesus is saying here. It's not the point. So, let's ask this question Does it matter? I'm telling you that pursuing righteousness by the Word of God and His commandments is not the way to know and experience God's love. Does that mean our commitment to righteous living doesn't matter? Are you free from the responsibility to obey and follow what the Lord says? Well, by no means. Luke 6.46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? He is concerned about our obedience, Tim. Most definitely, even in this verse 15, he's concerned about our obedience. He's going on in chapter 15 to talk about the relationship between our abiding in him and abiding in his love and the commandments that are related and flowing out of that. Our obedience does matter. Absolutely it does. He says, you're saying that I'm your Lord and you're not living like it. Or Matthew 7, 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You're not living. You're not obeying. You're not following my commandments. And yet you say that I'm your Lord and that you belong to me. Paul argues from Romans Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Keep in mind, for the first five chapters of Romans, Paul is convincing every person alive that you can't be righteous by the law. You can't save yourself. No amount of righteousness is going to save you. There's nothing but Christ and Him alone, faith alone. And then he gets to chapter 6 and he poses this argument. What shall we say then? If my working and my righteousness can't save me, and as a matter of fact, God's love is so great That he's able to take care of my sin, and Christ is glorified in the cross. If that's true, well, then let's just continue in sin that grace may abound. Right? Let's keep commandments. Don't matter. Well, Paul says by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So I ask, what is what is the answer? And hope for a soul which is grieved. By a feeling of the absence of God. What's the remedy for you now. As a Christian whose heart is troubled by sin. And where can an unbeliever find rest. From all their anxious toil. Where is their rest in these things? 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. John writes and says my little children. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we have two realities here, John's telling us. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we see John here. Notice he is, couldn't be plainer about how incredibly concerned he is that these Christian people he's writing to not go on sinning. He's concerned that the, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He doesn't want them to sin. He's concerned about it. If you go on sinning with no regard for the word of Christ, for what he tells you, for his commandments, You can have no assurance that you belong to Him. No assurance that your sins are forgiven. That's part of what Jesus is saying. If you love Me, there's going to be an evidence and fruit in your life. You will keep My commandments. That's what Jesus is saying. John is very much saying the same thing. I don't want you to sin. As Christians, you should be concerned about your sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous If you're not concerned about your sin. You should have very little assurance that your sins are forgiven. But if you carry the weight of the burden of your rebellion against God on your shoulders. Like some sort of of an iron weight. And you have a fearful sense of the horrors of sinning against the living God. John wants you to know. That if you're trusting this righteous one, Jesus Christ, that he is interceding for you. You see, there's this, this almost confusing balance, and I think the world is bewildered because half of the people in the world think that Christians are nothing but hypocrites who say live this way and don't actually live that way, and that's probably true. And the other half of the world think it doesn't matter how you live, you've got righteousness. Pretended righteousness. You've got a standard of rules and things to do. Legalism on the one hand. and On the other hand, you've got a carnal godlessness. That just wants spiritual experience. That's not Christianity. What Jesus is saying is. There's this real spiritual reality of a love for God in your soul. If you love me. And you have a pursuit of righteousness. A desire to follow after him and what he said. There's a balance in statements like this. Well, it may sound like we're not really working through it, expositing the verse, but just touching on things that it doesn't mean. I'm telling you what this doesn't mean so far. But what does it mean when Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, I believe it's necessary that we slow down and see that this is not a charge This is not a command for the burdened soul to pursue commandments in order to feel close to God. It can be easily interpreted that way. Do you see why I'm so concerned about this? That people would look at this and Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And somebody's saying, I've got to prove that I really love him. So I'm going to go out here and do all this stuff. I've got to make sure God knows I love him. That's why I'm out here doing these things. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you really do love me, these things are going to fall. These things are going to be a part of your life if you actually do love him. Jesus is revealing and indicating to the disciples that their obedience to his commandments are inevitable fruit, which overflows out of their love for him. If you love me, you will. Let me ask you again. Do you love him? Do you love this Jesus? That's what the entire Christian life comes down to is this. Do you love him? Jesus has told us the greatest commandment that's ever been given is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the God whom we're supposed to love has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The greatest commandment in all the world is to love Jesus. Do you love Him? This is, this is it. You don't get higher or deeper or more than this loving Christ. And if you're prepared to say that you do, is there any way to substantiate that claim? Can you prove that you love Him? I'm not telling you that if you want to prove to me or even to God, get out there and get to work. I'm saying... Is there an evidence that that statement, I love him, is actually true? And does everyone who claims to love him actually love him? I I know many people. I've got family members. I know people in other churches all over the place that say, I love Jesus. Well, that doesn't necessarily make it so. Jesus says, if you love me. Some scriptures on the subject. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6, John says this. If we say we have fellowship with Him. In other words, if we have a real and genuine loving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what he means when he says, if we say we have fellowship with Him. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, notice John's argument is very much like Jesus here. He's taking his cues from the Holy Spirit, leading and and guiding him, inspiring him. Jesus is telling us, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus is not saying, if you want to maintain your profession of faith in me, get out there and get to work keeping commandments. He's saying, if you really love me, this is going to be flowing out of you. Here's what John says. If you say you have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. Stop walking in darkness and start walking in light and doing righteous things so that you can prove you actually have fellowship with him. That's not what John says. He says, if you say you have fellowship with him and go on as a pattern of your life, walking in darkness, you're a liar and you don't have fellowship with him. What needs to change is not first the walking in darkness reality. It's the fellowship with Christ. That's the first thing. If you have no fellowship with Christ, it doesn't matter how much light you try to walk in. You're not going to be any better off for it. John tells us in 1 John 2 and verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. You see, again, the pattern here. John's saying, if you say you know Jesus, you're in fellowship, in relationship with him and you don't keep his commandments. Well, you better get to keeping his commandments. It's not what he says. He says, you're a liar. You haven't been changed. You have no truth in you. You have nothing has happened to you to cause you to desire his commandments. An often misunderstood scripture from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 26 through 27. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. What is he saying? If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, how many people think this is telling you you can lose your salvation? God forbid, it can't happen. It's not what he's saying. If you've been told the truth about Christ and you're not broken and brought to fellowship with this Jesus, there's not another sacrifice coming if you think there's hope for forgiveness of your sin anywhere but this Jesus, there's no other sacrifice to be had. That's what what the author of the Hebrews is, is saying. If you go on sinning deliberately after hearing of this Jesus, one thing remains. A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So on the one hand, perhaps there's someone here today He's very uncomfortable right now. You say, I believe in Jesus. I'm in fellowship with Jesus. I know Him. And yet, when you evaluate your life, you've got to come to admit that you're walking in darkness. That your life gives evidence to the fact that you never have loved Him. And the only thing awaiting you is a fearful expectation of judgment and this fury of fire That will consume his adversaries. That's on the one hand. A lost person. Someone who is uncomfortable when they're told, you say you love him, your life doesn't show it. Well, then on the other hand, what about me? What about you, Christian? You know, we've all got to admit that we have not perfectly kept his commandments, right? I'm sitting here, am I a hypocrite? I've sinned today in my own mind. How can I say I'm keeping his commandments? John says, you're not keeping his commandments. You're a liar if you say you know him. Well, what about me? I haven't perfectly kept his commandments. Am I a liar? Am I not in fellowship with him? And see, the danger of a verse like this to one who doesn't see what Jesus is saying is they're going to leave and they're going to say, because I've sinned, I want to know that God loves me. So I'm going out there to work. That's not what Jesus is saying. Not at all. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. What's the charge for us in our text today? Is really, is Jesus telling us that if you've done wrong, you need to get to work to rectify those misdeeds? Is your aim, should it be to increase your obedience to commands? And immediately begin pursuing righteousness and good living so that I can feel... As though I actually do love God. Well, I'm going to tell you that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is telling us. It's backwards. And this goes both to Christians and to the lost. That it is never our obedience to the commands of Christ. That give us a true sense of love for him. Listen to this. It's not my obedience that causes me to think I love God and he loves me. That's not what produces it. As a matter of fact. If pursuing obedience to the commands of God is what makes you feel loved, you're idolizing yourself and your own obedience. If you feel the most loved by God when you're having a good day and you're doing what you think is right, it's really yourself and your own ability to be righteous that you're looking to. It's not what he's saying when you come to realize your failure and that you have not obeyed his commands the charge that comes to you is to grow in your knowledge and love of Him. And as you grow in your knowledge of the love of Christ, as your knowledge of Christ and your love for Christ genuinely increases, your obedience to His commands is going to increase. He says, if you love me, and this must come first, Consider this a worked out real life example of this in Peter's life in John chapter 21. You recall Peter, he denied the Lord three times. Three times he's asked if he knows Jesus. He says, I don't know the man, I don't know him, and then curses him. Well, then, after Jesus is crucified and resurrected, Peter and Jesus are seen together here in verse 15 of John 21. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, here's a real life example of someone who's failed miserably at the commands of Christ. You know, Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. And Peter denied him before men. He's failed at the commands of Christ. And now here we see Jesus restoring him by what? Saying, Peter, get back out there and get to work. Making sure you're not denying me. No. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You see, it's this pattern that love produces obedience. If you love me, feed my lambs. Don't go out trying to earn my love by feeding them. Feed them because you love me. Let your love for me be the the source of what you're doing. I ask, then what is it that's going to produce this love for him in us? Why is it that anyone loves God at all? Why do you think that you love God? A lot of reasons people think that they love God. Things he can provide for them. Things that they attribute to what he has done in their lives. John tells us in the fourth chapter of his first epistle, he says this in verse 19. Truest and most simple truth in all the scriptures. We love because he first loved us. That's big. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Okay, how do I come to love you? What do I have to do? Nothing. It's my love. We love because He first loved. That's what produces my love for Him. Is His love for me. I see His love for me. And it produces a love for Him. Which in turn produces a keeping of His commandments. There is no greater source of growth and sanctification in the Christian life. Than growing in your love for Christ. And your knowledge of His love for you. That is the thing we must be after. 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. This is how Paul puts it. By this time, he's been converted. He's been following Christ for some time. He's writing letters. This is actually his second letter to the church at Corinth. And he's suffered miserably for the name of Christ. He's done a lot of good stuff, a lot of good works. He's serving these people. And he says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Paul says, you want to know why I'm doing what I'm doing? Christ loves me and that that changes everything in my life. I do what I do because he loves me. It's his love for me. That's what moves me. Jesus says, if you love me and there's nothing going to make you love him more than seeing his love for you. That's the ticket. That's what we're after. Paul writes as well to the church in Galatia. Chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, now, the last scripture we read, he says that this is what we conclude, that one has died for all, therefore all died. Well, to the Galatians, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. Now what does that have to do with this? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Paul's saying this. The life that I now live in the flesh. What's he talking about? He's saying his active physical pursuit of obedience to God. He's talking. He's still alive physically. And he's serving God with his life on the earth now. He's saying this physical life. The motivation for why I'm living this life in the flesh. This is it. Faith in the love of Christ for him. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul says, Jesus Christ loved me and He died for me. And that's the foundation of everything I'm trying to do. Everything in my life. That's the source of true obedience. I'll look at at least one more Scripture with you from Philippians where Paul Paul cared a lot about this truth I'm putting before you now. Jesus does, Paul does. Look with me at Philippians chapter 3. And we see Paul working this out for us. Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Bear with me. The context is going to be very important. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I just I have to pause for a moment because I've told some brothers in the church recently that if I repeat myself, it's okay. Paul says so. It's safe for you. It's good for you. It doesn't bother me. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And now he's going to tell you why we put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's amazing. Paul's saying, I in the flesh could say I'm blameless, but I take all of that superficial righteousness and I wash it down the toilet. I don't need it. I have the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's my foundation. Now listen to what he says next. In light, in light of what he says to be true about Christ, this righteousness that's not his own, he says this. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Does that not sound like Paul's doing stuff? He's working. But what's the source of his working? It's the righteousness that's been given to him apart from his works. There's no greater source of sanctification in your life than realizing the grace of God that saved you. That it's not your righteousness. He goes on, though. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Whew, I'm glad to hear you say that, Paul. Neither am I. But. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's Paul telling you? He's saying, I had this external righteousness, but it was dumb. And he's saying, Jesus gives me his righteousness. It's not my righteousness. Okay, Paul, it's kicked back. You're heaven bound. No work for you to do. You're saved by grace alone. Paul says, don't you realize the grace of God in Christ has saved your soul? Commit all of yourself to loving and serving him in light of that. Strain towards it. If you love him, you'll keep his commandments. That's what he's telling you. What do you say to these things? You will be hard pressed to find more aggressive, passionate, and rigorous expressions of working, laboring unto God than that which are here in verses 7 through 14. Paul told us this is not an attempt at personal righteousness, he's not trying to earn God's love or being accepted by what he does. He says it's his knowledge of Christ's love for him that drives him. That's the question. Do you love him? If you find that your experience with God is lacking, let me suggest to you that you're not knowing the love of God for you. Now, this is this is where this gets tricky, okay? You see, the driving force and motivation which produces a real And genuine pursuit of obedience in every single Christian is objective knowledge of Christ's love, which has been subjectively revealed to them by the Holy Spirit and the word of God. You might take this down. This is important. I'm going to repeat that the driving force and motivation which produces a true and genuine pursuit of obedience in every single Christian. What moves every Christian to pursue obedience truly is the objective, unchanging truth of Christ's love, which has been subjectively and personally applied to them and revealed to them by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Very, very important. Two realities. Notice both. There's the objective truth and the subjective. The objective truth is this, that Christ loves us. It's that which has been revealed plainly in the scriptures. When we're talking about objective truth, we're not saying, well, that may be your truth, but it's not really my truth. We're saying we have a standard here and this tells us what's true. God has spoken. And that objective truth, Romans 5, 8, you want to know that God loves you? But God shows his love for us and that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Objective truth. How do I know that Christ loves me? God showed me because Jesus died on the cross. Unchanging truth. Or John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So this is objective. It doesn't matter what you do with Jesus. This is still true. You can go out of here and go to hell. God still sent his son to save the world. That's objectively true. These objective truths about God's love. These are the things that we cling to and hold fast to no matter how we might feel. And life's full of times when we don't feel these things. We, we cry out, God, increase my faith. And until you do, I'm holding fast to the promises of this book. But what about the subjective? That's the objective truth. Jesus died for sinners. Subjective reality, do you believe that he died for you? This matters, doesn't it? This matters. When God by His spirit takes that which is objective, that which is unchanging and tells your soul, I was talking about you when I said that. I wasn't just throwing it out there into the ether, hoping it settled on your head. I was actually talking about you. Does our experience matter? Is it enough to just believe objective truth with no internal reality or experience of assurance? And what is to be our subjective experience of God's love? You desire to know with certainty in your soul, God loves me, right? We, we want to know that. How do we come to know that? Someone says, read your Bible. Yeah, I read the word. Pray that God by His spirit would bring it alive to you. Well, the answer Jesus gives us in these next two verses This is where this objective reality meets with the subjective experience. Verse 16 of John chapter 14, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Now, I love how... Clear and fitting this is with the context of what we're seeing. Jesus, I can just imagine the disciples. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And they're sitting there thinking. Um, Lord, I, I do love you, but that's a tall order. I can't produce this in myself. What? Okay, how am I going to know that you still love me when I have failed you? Because I'm going to. It's as though to immediately cut off that kind of doubt. Jesus says, I'm going to give you a help." There's going to be one that's coming to you to be with you, though. I'm not with you physically anymore. There's going to be one that's reminding you and telling you that these things are so. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And our subjective, our individual, our personal experience of this truth of God's love for us. Is dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Look with me for a moment at Romans chapter 8. And don't just listen to this and say, "Uh uh-huh, that's all we think here. Is this true? Is this something that's a reality in your life? I see so many people that are longing for an experience of God's Spirit. And they have no interest in these truths. If you want to claim a promise from God. Here it is. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 16. Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All. If you have the Spirit of God, you're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. You're a child of God. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry. Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see, there's such a thing as this application of objective truth. Jesus tells you what's true. His Word tells you what's true. And the Holy Spirit takes that truth and applies it to your heart. As an individual, so that you come to own it. You individually are a child of God, and you know that you are. So much so that the Holy Spirit moves you to say, Father, He's my Father, not just Jesus, mine because of the Spirit of God in me. That's the work of this helper Jesus is promising. You love Him. It's the Holy Spirit which produces this personal conviction. That God really does love us. And don't misunderstand. When Jesus says, if you love me, he's talking about your love and affection for him. It's talking about your desire to actually please him because of who he is and what he means to you. So the question comes, do you see how your knowledge of God's love for you is the very thing that's going to produce in you a greater love for God, which then in turn produces Obedience to his commands, not trying to be righteous, but because you really love him. You really actually love him. There's nothing more soul stretching than this. And unless there's someone who thinks, well, that sounds kind of like a puppet. God's got you on a string and he's maneuvering you and making you dance a jig in front of him so he can enjoy you. I've got a quote to share by one of the most solid reformed brothers I've I've, I've ever read. And I highly encourage you. Is A.W. Pink. front of the bulletin. How is it the Spirit of God moves in us? He says, the Spirit acts upon sinners. Now, now, pause. He's talking, I believe, initially in salvation. But I believe over the course of your Christian life, this experience only ever increases. This is my position. So carry on. Pink says, the Spirit acts upon sinners agreeably. Their nature, not by external force such as is used on an unwilling animal, but by spiritual influence or power moving their inward faculties. I drew them with the cords of a man, with bands of love. Isaiah eleven four. By rational conviction of their judgment, by showing them that there is infinitely more goodness and blessedness in Christ than in the creature. For sinful gratification of carnal desires by winning their hearts to Christ, by communicating to them a powerful sense of his superlative excellency and complete suitability unto all their needs. To them that believe he is precious, so precious that they're willing to part with the world and everything that so they may win Christ you hear the language of Paul from Philippians 3 in that statement? The surpassing excellencies of the knowledge of Christ. You really love him. You say he's more sweet than anything. There's nothing greater. The Holy Spirit doesn't drag you kicking and screaming. He tunes your affections and your wooed to this beautiful Savior who says, I love you. God convinces you of the love of Christ by his spirit. He becomes all that you want. Now the question that we're left with. Is this true of everyone? Is everyone a child of God? Does everyone know God as Father? Is the Spirit at work doing this specific work that Jesus describes to every person in the world? We notice in verse 17. Jesus says, well, he's already told us in verse 16 to be with you forever. Forever. And if that's talking about every person in the world, we've got a problem. Is the Spirit going to be with every person in the world forever? The sad answer is no. He's not. Jesus is talking about the effectual work of the Holy Spirit on His people. Those who will be saved. He says He'll be with you forever. And this Helper we read in verse 17. He says, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. We don't see the Spirit either, do we? He says the world can't see Him. And the world doesn't know Him. The Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit of God, is seen to be effectual on all of God's people. And the world and everyone who has not been changed by the power of God are separated from a knowledge of God and his love. You see, that's this work. The Holy Spirit comes to bring to you a knowledge of God, a knowledge of your sin and a knowledge of God's love for you, though you be a sinner, that you might come and be reconciled to God. That experience happens to believers. And I wonder if there's anyone here. That the Spirit of God has stirring your heart in this way today. Have you been made aware of the love of God? That's displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ for the first time. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. If there's anything He's doing in this place now. I believe it must be this. To convince the lost and Christians alike. God loves me because of what Jesus did. Now, this is where I want to bring these things together. And I mentioned it already. But the work of this comforter, this Spirit of God, the same one who inspired every line of your Bible, when He comes to you and He meets with you, is to convince you of the truth of what He's already said. What He's already given you in this book. That's His work. And my desire, my prayer, is that the love of God The love of God seen in these things would produce in us all a genuine repentance. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In other words, when I see that I'm not keeping his commandments, it's a clarion call. You're not loving Jesus. I can tell you firsthand meeting on the side of the road having to pull my car over because I'm so overwhelmed by conviction over a desire to sin. And the one thought that delivered me is, do you love him more than that thing? That's what it comes to. Do you love Jesus? Is he worth more than anything? There's no better time and there's no other guaranteed opportunity for you to respond in repentance and faith to Jesus than now. If you're not saved, that you would cry out, do you see the abundant mercy set before you now? He says, come, is there any greater love than this? There is not. My greatest desire as an elder in this church is to see every member come to love Jesus Christ more. That never any one of us reach a point where we say, I do love Him and not this burning desire to grow in our knowledge and love for Him. I pray that that would be the the result of the thoughts today. That you would grab hold of these things and where you see that you fail, you stop running to the trough of trying to earn God's love once again. You didn't earn it in the first place and you can't continue to earn it. Only Christ and only His righteousness avails for us. And I pray that would encourage you. I I, I do ask, and I will ask you now to bow with me in prayer and ask that you would lift those who will be with us here in the coming week for a conference up as we close out this service in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord, You alone are the source of our righteousness. Your Son and His perfect life is the only thing we can plead. Father, I pray that you would tune our affections and draw our hearts to a greater knowledge of his love. Lord, grow us, cause us to desire what you desire and to love what you love. Oh, God, I praise you for everyone who is in this place now, and I pray you would work your effectual work by your spirit. Anyone who may be lost. Father, protect us this week. Protect those who are traveling to come and minister to us in the coming days. I pray that your spirit would be poured out mightily and powerfully upon this place and this community. Lord, that your name would be highly exalted. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.